Coming up on the Sports Media Podcast from the New York Post and Sports Business Journal, is Dry to Survive Having Engine Issues? NFL Network's Daniel Jeremiah gets us set for the combine, and we review the ninth iteration of the match. This would be good for $200,000! This is the Sports Media Podcast from the New York Post and Sports Business Journal. Welcome into the show. I'm Austin Karp. We're joined by SBJ's Josh Carpenter to talk golf. But first, let's get to who's up, who's down. Who's up, who's down. My up this week, ESPN's Ryan Clark. He re-signed with the network after what was kind of a public negotiation. He had aired some of his frustrations with not getting a new deal. But I'm happy that he's back at ESPN. The guy is incredibly versatile, does the NFL programming, does morning shows like Get Up, and is really solid. He's going to probably continue to develop his podcast outside of ESPN's auspices, The Pivot. And he was also pretty good inside the NFL last season. I'm curious to see if he continues on that show. Josh, who do you have for your down this week? My down for this week, Austin, is, is the situation surrounding Eli Gold and Alabama football. I'm a longtime college football fan. Those who know me well know that there's nothing, for me, there's nothing better than being on campus on a Saturday afternoon in the fall, the music, the pageantry surrounding it. Uh, part of that also is the voices around college football. Keith Jackson, Brent Musburger. I put Eli Gold in that same category. Been calling Alabama games since 1988. Touchdown, Alabama! In NASCAR country here, obviously listen to a lot of NASCAR on the radio. Eli Gold on NASCAR calls for a long time. I think he's someone who's synonymous with Alabama football. He's synonymous with college football as a sport. So I think despite whatever terms they they went their separate ways on, I'm not sure what happened there, why they decided to go their separate ways. Um, I think it's just a huge loss for, for Alabama football, for college football fans. I'm sure Chris Stewart, who has filled in for Eli when he's been dealing with some health issues in the past, will do a fine job. He's been there for a long time doing Alabama basketball. Um, but I do think it's just a big, big loss for Alabama football fans and college football fans as a whole, seeing Eli Gold uh, go his separate ways uh, with the Crimson Tide. Well, it's part of a lot of changes that are going on in Tuscaloosa for Crimson Tide fans this fall. Nick Saban's leaving too, so things are definitely going to look different for Alabama next season. My down for this week is Drive to Survive Season 6. That dropped on Netflix recently. And, you know, Box to Box continues to do a great job producing it, but there was no drama this year. And you kind of knew that coming in if you had paid attention at all to F1 in 2023. Max Verstappen just dominated. He won something, and Red Bull won something like 19 or 20 races. It was ridiculous. There was very little competition. So it, it kind of felt manufactured, the drama that Box to Box had to produce for this show. It was like... All right, let's see who's battling for second place in the Constructors series. Like that was like the complete focus of the final episode. Now, Las Vegas in that last episode of this season looked incredibly good. That debut race, it was glitzy. They showed the lights, they showed the pomp. That came off really well. But having that kind of manufactured drama just didn't really sit well for me, especially in the past seasons when you had Max and you had Lewis Hamilton really going at it for a championship and they built up that drama. It, it created more fandom in me for F1. You know, I, I'll admit I only really latched on to F1 once I started watching this show, like a lot of people. I also think it was a loss for the show that Gunter Steiner is exiting. He was on this season, but not going to be returning as the principal at Haas. They kind of alluded it to it quickly at the end of the last episode. 
I am curious to see if they're able to bring him back in some capacity for season seven. Obviously, that, you know, weighs off. But I do know the next season's show will be big on Lewis Hamilton's announced move to Ferrari for the 2025 season. They did not talk at all about that. So I know the show's probably going to be coming back. But this season didn't really bring the drama for me. Josh, who is your up for this week? Austin, my who's up for this week is the match. Aired Monday night on TNT, Rose Zhang, Lexi Thompson, Rory McIlroy, Max Homa. It's been pretty interesting to see how this series has evolved over the years. 2018 debuted Tiger Woods against Phil Mickelson. We all know about that one. In the years since, they've transitioned a little bit. They've added some NFL quarterbacks, some other celebrities, NBA players into the mix. As a, a, a longtime golf fan, I love my golf. I want to see golfers. I can see celebrities play anytime. So I really like seeing four, you know, top pros at the top of their game. And then you add in the ladies to this mix. Lexi Thompson, probably one of the most popular LPGA players over the last 15 years. And then you've got Rose Zhang, who is maybe the most successful amateur player in the history of, of golf. Even looking at the men's game and the success that, that Tiger had there in his amateur career. I mean, Rose coming on the scene, winning in her pro debut last summer, really couldn't have asked for four better players last night. I mean, for me, I'm kind of a golf traditionalist. I like my three to six on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. So I'm not really the target audience for this match. Reaction on social media on Monday night was super successful, you know, overwhelmingly positive, I thought, aside from a few too many DJ Khaled references throughout the broadcast on TNT. I have to, to think that some of these TV network executives from the likes of CBS, from NBC, some of these PGA Tour, even live rights holders, are going to be watching these sorts of matches. Kevin Hopkins, Mark Steinberg, the team at XL, they really try a bunch of different things around the match. You look at the mic'd up players, uh, various you know drone shots around the course, a lot of different things that other networks could potentially be looking at. We continually talk about golf broadcasters looking to enhance the product. So what is an NBC? Tommy Roy, what is Seller Shy at CBS watching on this broadcast last night and thinking, how can I improve that? How can I take this little bit and add it to our broadcast at CBS and make it better? Um, that's one thing that I think probably is going on throughout this match. But I'd say overall, again, not my cup of tea. I enjoyed it, uh, but I'm not the target audience. And I think it really, uh, you know, they, it did really well last night. I was, I was pretty impressed. Well, Josh, my biggest takeaway from your analysis is that you do not have DJ Khaled on your Spotify list. But nope. talk about who is the target audience for this. I think it's young. It's it's people who are kind of fringe, being interested in the game. It's younger folks. Like my wife was sitting there watching it last night and commented how much she liked uh, Rory's yellow hoodie that he was wearing. Um, I think it's it's young people. It's not the 65 and older crowd, which I'm a 34-year-old and a 65-year-old body. So I think really that younger demographic is what Excel Sports Management, which runs this event, TNT, that group, they did a similar event, uh, I say similar, somewhat related, the Netflix Cup last uh, November in Las Vegas around, you know, you had PGA Tour players, you had F1 drivers, Excel runs that event too, similar type of target audience with that event. So that's really who they're kind of going after. Josh, I'm a numbers guy, and I want to stick with golf here a minute, specifically the match. When this thing started, when you had Tiger and you had Rory involved, that thing was pushing around 6 million viewers across the TNT, TBS, the networks that were airing that. 
how can they continue to in increase that audience? Because it really has dropped off in recent years. I think the last version didn't even draw a million. How can they draw a big number? Is it bringing Tiger back? Could he play with his son? Or could we potentially see live golfers versus PGA Tour players? Would that help drive an audience? I mean, yeah, that would certainly help drive an audience. I don't know with, you know, with Excel Sports Management being behind this event. Also, of course, Mark Steinberg repping Tiger Woods. I don't know that in this current iteration, if you would see a PGA Tour versus live you know, kind of standoff like that, certainly it would draw huge ratings if it did. Maybe down the line, if there's an agreement between the PGA Tour and the PIF, maybe you see that. I think it really as a way to grow the audience, that's probably an outlier with that original audience uh, between Phil and Tiger, whatever that drew. That might've been on pay-per-view Austin. I'd have to go back and look at the numbers. But I think for me, it's like, keep putting a premium product out there. And to me, that's putting pro golfers on there. I'd, I'd much rather sit down and watch like the four that we had on Monday night instead of a Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Steph Curry, even though Steph Curry's a very good golfer, people love watching him. I think those types of events are kind of, we can watch them at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, you know, in the early part of the year. That's fine, but I think really, if you're gonna wanna get a golf audience, even a younger golf audience, like put some of these young stars in this type of format. Put a, a guy like Jake Knapp, not very well known. I'm not saying he's a big enough name, but he's got a great story. He's a former nightclub bouncer, and then he goes and wins on the PGA Tour. He's got enormous swing speed. Like put those types of people in this format. And maybe, again, I don't think the numbers will get back to where they were, six million, like you mentioned, but maybe they see a steady increase as we as we go forward. Josh, I agree. It was incredibly well received that they had for the first time that LPGA crossover. And I do think that people want to see professional golfers do that. Who and what that is in the future, that remains to be seen. But it was good seeing that professional golfers were back in here. It wasn't gimmicky. You know, like you said, you can save that for the program or you can save that for Tahoe in the summer. I'm curious to see how that event continues to evolve. Let's shift over to the PGA Tour a little bit. We've wrapped up the West Coast swing onto the Sunshine State now. Where do PGA Tour numbers sit right now? We joke about it all the time, Austin, you and I. It's been a, a bit of a mixed bag this year. You know, Century, the season opening tournament was pretty much flat. They've seen some good increases. Uh, Sony Open was up pretty big. The Amex out in the California desert was up big, mainly due to Nick Dunlap becoming the first amateur to win on the PGA Tour in, in 30 plus years, those ratings were really good. They've seen some, some drop-offs in some of their other events. Um, Pebble Beach obviously was hurt by the weather issues they saw out there. That event was shortened to 54 holes. Um, Farmers at Torrey Pines was down because you didn't have some of those big names at the top of the leaderboard. That's something I'm really watching, Austin, as you had you know players like John Rahm has gone to live golf. Think about all these stars who have gone to live golf in the last few years who typically would play well in this opening section of the season. John Rahm won three times last year in this early part of the season. Cam Smith won the century a couple of years ago. Dustin Johnson always plays well this time of year. Not having those players, you're starting to see some of the leaderboards we've had in recent weeks on the PGA Tour, they've still been strong, but maybe not as strong as you typically would see if you had had some of those other big names. Obviously, Liv has a ton of really good players uh, who, you know, in previous years would have been playing these tournaments on the PGA Tour. But is Liv benefiting? Are Liv numbers on the CW, are you seeing any sort of rise with these this influx of guys like Rom who are coming over? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Liv's event in Las Vegas a few weeks back did see a small bump, a small increase. I'd have to go go back and look. I don't recall the numbers for their season opening event in Mexico, whether they were up or down over last year. It's hard to compare because they're held in different months, basically. Um, so it's hard to compare. But they did, Liv did had a, have a very uh, kind of juiced final round. You had Joaquin Neiman, you know, against Sergio Garcia in a playoff. You had John Rahm making his debut. It'll be really interesting to see Liv's numbers, uh, you know, this weekend in Saudi Arabia with the time time zone difference. You've got a player like Anthony Kim. Every golf person I know who follows golf, who has been interested in golf, who covers golf, is going to be watching that event. Now, are they going to be watching it on the CW, which everyone rates golf events by whatever that Nielsen number is? Are they going to be watching on CW's linear channel? Are they going to be watching it on Live Golf Plus, their OTT platform? Are they going to be watching it on the CW app? That remains to be seen. But I think Live certainly there will be some some more interest in their event in Saudi Arabia this week with with Anthony Kim's debut. Well, Josh, I know you and I are going to continue paying attention to the numbers very closely with this Florida swing. We got Bay Hill coming up. I know you are going to be at the players and the Masters, so some key numbers coming up, a good indicator of where golf sits. Josh Carpenter, SBJ's resident golf expert, thanks for taking the time to chat. Always a pleasure with you, Austin. Our big get today may, in fact, be a machine, and he put up some gaudy numbers last week during his NFL Combine preview call with reporters. That call was two hours, seven minutes, 67 questions answered. I certainly hope he has an energy drink sponsor after uh, you know some stats like that. That man is Daniel Jeremiah, NFL Network's lead draft analyst, who joins us today to talk about what might be the most notable live job interview in sports, the NFL Scouting Combine in Indianapolis. Daniel, thanks for taking the time to chat, and we promise to get you out of here. No more than 40 questions. <laughs> yeah, that's that's halftime. I mean, come on, that's uh, that's a piece of cake. Uh, no energy drinks, by the way, but coffee. I've got that. Definitely, I should be in the, on the hunt for a coffee sponsorship. Oh, absolutely. We're gonna we're gonna get an agent on that immediately. We got to get you hooked up with a coffee sponsor. <laughs> Daniel, first, I want to start off. Give us some of your thoughts on Peter King. He announced his retirement recently. What has been his influence on your career? You know, it's funny. Um, you almost think, okay, I'm, man, I'm the one that, man, Peter poured into me and I'm so thankful and so grateful and such a unique thing to have somebody that's a Hall of Famer and so revered who has taken the time. Um, you know, I've had so many conversations with him over the phone over the years, especially in the, in the run up to the draft. Um, and he's, he's helped kind of promote me and, and, uh, and really been in my corner. And then he announces retirement and then you see, oh my gosh, how many people was Peter doing this for? Like he reached out and helped so many people. Um, who have kind of risen up through the ranks at all these different networks. But uh, what a testament to him that, you know, it's just he was out there trying to not only he did his job at a very high level, but kind of bringing up a next generation um, and just a great mentor, no doubt. Oh, he's been a must read for me since I started in the business. And my one interaction with him at one of our conferences, yeah, could not have been a nicer guy. Just really lived and breathed and loved football. So, you know, best wishes to him on whatever is next. So getting to you as an analyst, what are the biggest differences between 2012 when you started with NFL Network and now with the Combine and everything else you do for the network? I, you know, I think this is the, the, the growth of the draft. Um, to me, the, like the, the turning point was when the draft went on the road. Um, you know, I'd been in, in the NFL and, and started scouting in 2003. So I've kind of – I go back to where the draft kind of was 20 years ago, 20-plus years ago. 
and it had gotten big in New York and Radio City was a big deal. And I thought, man, when they announced they were going to move it and they were going to take it on the road, I was like, I don't know if this is a good idea. Like this kind of works, the energy and all that stuff in, in New York. And then we go to Chicago and they start bouncing all over the country and you're seeing hundreds of thousands of people show up for this thing. And it just turned into it just turned into a massive event. And so you've got the event itself that's grown like crazy. And then that's trickled down to all the other events that lead up to it. So the combine now, the attention, the amount of media that are here. Um, I remember when I first started scouting, you would walk through the hallways and there would be John Clayton, uh, Peter King and Chris Mortensen. And that was it. That, that was literally all you would see from the media. Now, I mean, you can't get off of an elevator without uh, bumping into three or four different reporters that are here. It is uh, it is a massive, uh, massive process now, not just the draft itself, but the run up to the draft. You mentioned about the draft moving from different city to city now, becoming this massive event. Do you think that's something that maybe the NFL could or even should try with the Combine? It's been in Indianapolis for a while now, but should that kind of take on this traveling circus sort of thing? I think it could be a huge event, you know, if they did and took it around to different cities, much like the draft. The challenge is um, logistically, you know, because it still is a, it's a scouting event where medicals are a huge part of that. And with the the setup in downtown Indianapolis, you can get to the hospital so easily. So if a guy needs to get more imaging or needs to go in and get another look, it's, you know, from a convenience standpoint, it's hard to beat Indianapolis. It's really set up beautifully for the combine. So uh, much like I would say what I said about the draft, I think it's good. It's perfect just as it is. But if someday it were to move, I'm sure the NFL would find a way to make it bigger. Well, I know Indianapolis is well-known for that tight footprint you've talked about. We heard it with NBA All-Star Game recently, so that is something important to remember. You know, specifically talking about the Combine, talk about its place in importance among NFL Network's programming and how that has really grown over the years. Well, I think it's huge, you know, and uh, the fact that you kind of have some ownership to it, you know, the... Uh, look, ESPN does a good job. They've, they've stepped up their coverage here in terms of the amount of program that they'll have coming out of Indianapolis. But still, you know, for all the drills from start to finish, uh, you know, four-day event, we have, uh, we have live coverage. So it's kind of been the place to be to go watch this and consume this, this event. So it's fun when you have some ownership of it. The draft, I mean, it is, uh, you know, you've got equal access. ESPN, NFL Network, we're both, you know, doing the same event, same time schedule. Uh, with the combine, it feels like there's a little more ownership there from our from our standpoint, which which makes it fun because you get to kind of shape it. You can kind of shape the coverage. You can shape the stories. Um, you can kind of set up. I feel like you're kind of putting the ball on the tee for when we get to Detroit for the draft. I think that's kind of our job is like this is an introduction uh, to the audience of, of who these players are, not only as players, but as people and uh, and get a chance to tell some really cool stories. Well, I think, you know, a lot of people in football or football fans really just associate Rich Eisen running in his suit with the combine. That's just become <laughs> this ubiquitous thing in sports. So I know how important it's been to NFL Network. But looking back over the years, what has been your favorite combine moment? Ooh, that's a tough one. There's there's so many to choose from. Um, Shaquem Griffin was pretty cool. I mean, when you got somebody out there who has has is missing a hand and goes out there and we're showing him on the bench press, just repping out 225 pounds. You talk about an inspiring, you know, inspiring moment. So that that's one that comes out uh, right to the top of my mind. So many other cool moments that, you know, DK Metcalf ran, uh, you know, like, gosh, a low four, three, at, at, you know, as big as he is. And then we had footage of him. I think Kim Jones might've uh, alerted us to it, who was doing the, the sidelines at the time. And uh, he was calling his mom, I believe right after he finished running and he's crying on the field. And it was kind of like seeing someone's 
someone realizing, okay, this is all happening. Like this dream is kind of being realized and to have a, a camera on that and see that real time was pretty powerful. Yeah. I remember seeing Griffin and like it hurt, hurt my shoulders looking at these guys do bench press first off, <laughs> but like seeing him do that, that really oh. was amazing. That was, that was a yeah. solid moment. We have cool ones every year though. That's the fun thing. It's like, you don't know where it's going to come from or what it's going to be, but there'll be some story that will emerge. Daniel, we'll get you out of here on this. What is the biggest off field sports business of the NFL story that you are paying attention to right now? Oh gosh. Uh, off field sports business. You know, one of the things I'm looking forward to is now we just had a huge jump in the salary cap. So um, from a business standpoint, I guess it's still kind of the, you know, the business with the teams, but how they continue to try and use different techniques to kind of get around this. You know, I, I've seen now that the best teams not only have the best personnel in terms of, you know, scouts and coaches, but they now have brought in this business sense on this on the salary cap side of things that has found a way to really kind of shape this thing and make this thing work. But it's, you know, the cool thing about it for teams that they're loving when you relate it to, to sports media and, and, and the business side of it, man, these new television contracts have generated so much dang revenue. And that eventually makes its way down to the field and that money gets to the players. So um, it's kind of it's this ecosystem where everything just kind of works together from the business side over to the football side. Yeah, just crazy dollars from those NFL media deals. And oh. in a couple of years, we're going to be talking about it again. And the sums are, I can't even imagine what they're going to be one day. So, <laughs> well, NFL Network's coverage of the Combine from Lucas Oil Stadium starts Thursday, 3 p.m. Then Friday, again at 3 p.m., followed by Saturday, Sunday, starting at 1. Our guest, Daniel Jeremiah, you can find him at Move the Sticks on X. Daniel, thanks for taking the time to chat with the Sports Media Podcast from the New York Post and SBJ. Best of luck in Indy this week. No, I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. And we move from 40 times to something a little faster, the start to the F1 season. The circuit's going to be in Bahrain for the start of the 2024 season. And to talk about it, David Cushman, our head of content out of London for Leaders in Sport, and based here in Charlotte, Adam Stern, our motorsports writer. Guys, thanks for taking the time to chat. Cheers, Austin. Thank you. You know, the first thing I want to talk about, Netflix, Drive to Survive, Season 6, just dropped. It's obviously a review of the 2023 season. I've checked out a lot of the episodes, and I got to say, they seem like there was a lot of manufactured drama just because Max Verstappen was so dominant last season. But, you know, David, I want to go to you first. Looking back at previous seasons, and you can also reflect on what you've seen this so far this season, what has been the response to the show in Europe? Obviously, F1 was already incredibly popular on the continent, but what has it done for the series there? Well, I've seen uh, three or four episodes of the new series, and I think, roughly speaking, it is uh, same again. I think it's always been a little bit manufactured, and the drama has been hyped up, and certain situations have been slightly contrived to fit the storyline, but I guess that's the Netflix prerogative. Newer fans probably don't mind that or don't know about uh, some of that. Some of the more hardened fans, yeah, do find that a little bit uh, frustrating, but nonetheless... It's always nice to have a little glimpse, even for the the hardened, experienced F1 fan into the, you know, the inner workings of the paddock and hearing those little snippets, whether it's drivers or team principals or some of the other characters around the series. So more of the same in that respect. In terms of what it's done in Europe, I think certainly it has switched on Formula One for a lot of people who maybe previously didn't know much about it certainly didn't pay it much attention. And there's a definite cool factor almost about Formula One. It's become a little bit more part of the popular culture over the, the past few years. I know the same is true in, in the US. 
Um, but there's definitely a new wave, a new generation of fans that have come out of the drive to survive era, if you like. Um, I think a couple of reasons for that uh, and a couple of reasons why some of the impact has been a bit exaggerated. F1 was obviously first out of the blocks with this type of documentary. A lot of other sports have been copying it, as we all know, um, in the years since it was first released. I think the fact that it was just gathering steam as a series when COVID hit and there was no other live sport to watch was a real big factor in its success. And equally that incredible, almost once in a generation championship battle that we saw in 2021 between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton with that remarkable, unbelievable finish um, really, I think, helped. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's been overall uh, a big positive, even if perhaps some of the success and the power of the series has maybe been a touch overstated. Adam, would you agree that it still has that cool factor, the show here in the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. When you look at what the show has done so far this season, uh, according to Flix Patrol, a streaming data site um, in 70 countries around the world, roughly, it's made the top 10 so far. And the average ranking is number four. Uh, and those are obviously countries all over the world, pretty much every continent you can think of. So look, from a macro perspective, this show continues to do well. It continues to do what Liberty Media originally had in mind, which is try and spread this sport around, create drama off the track, because there's not always drama on the track. And it continues to do that. So from a really large perspective, I think the show continues to do well. You can see it in the numbers. Kind of digging down a little bit more into the details, as you guys have mentioned, there are some things to, to nitpick a little bit. Um, you know, there's still, it seems like a little bit of manufactured drama to a degree. Um, there's even some things that were a little bit off this season where at one point they showed a, a pre-race grid shot of a F2 race and they were trying to make it look like it was an F1 race. So some things like that where they're just misaligning production shots and, and you know, obviously in the past they've kind of been accused of manufacturing drama even with like driver radios at times when they were saying things that weren't really matching up with what the viewer was seeing. It seems like they've kind of gotten a little bit away from that and gotten more towards accuracy, but there was definitely still some complaints this year. Um, so, look, I mean, as you guys have mentioned, last season for F1 was, you know, however you want to put it, either, either was kind of the most dominant season ever by a driver or some people would say it was just a very boring season as a result. Of course, it, it, F1 has a lot of drama off the track. Uh, we just saw, for example, Lewis Hamilton's going to Ferrari next year. Um, you know, Christian Horner, unfortunately for himself, is embroiled in a big drama that could see him potentially lose his job that everyone's keeping on. So F1 has always been a series that has a lot of action off the track. And, and this show has done a good job highlighting it. Um, as you guys have mentioned, it was very much so benefited by COVID and how everyone was stuck at home. But the big thing watching out for now is, is Drive to Survive going to be enough? Um, we saw F1 plateau a little bit last year in the U.S. with its ratings uh, because Max Verstappen was dominating so much. So, you know, we know that there's the big Brad Pitt movie coming out next year with Apple Films, things like that. But it will be really interesting to keep an eye on whether F1 has started to plateau here or whether things like Drive to Survive can can still keep the growth going. You know, they didn't talk about, obviously, in this current season, anything with Lewis Hamilton leaving or anything having to do, like you said, with the management at Red Bull. They did talk a little bit about one of the show's biggest stars, Gunter Steiner, being out at Haas. That was at the end of the series foreshadowing that he's probably not going to be a part of season seven if that happens unless they bring him in as you know one of the voices to talk about the series one of the new additions i did like was they added danica patrick obviously has 
more appeal in the United States. You know, her career in NASCAR, in IndyCar, incredibly well known. So that was an interesting addition. Adam, you talked about the, you know, the numbers last season. Uh, they were down a little bit from 2022. Still the second best season for ESPN for F1, you know, in, on U.S. airwaves. But that's another rights deal that's going to be coming up. And something that we've written about a lot is how much money is there in the ecosystem for, you know, middle-of-the-road properties like this. And in the U.S., that's what F1 is. Are there going to be dollars for F1 as those rights come up again? I think based off of what I've heard, what, um, you know, we've spoken with experts, you know, it's possible they could get a small increase. But to get the sort of increase they got last time, which was more than tenfold, absolutely no chance. Um, they got that, you know, not only just around the time um, when things were kind of the market was tightening up, media companies started pushing more for profitability, um, you know, and cord cutting accelerated. Not only did that all happen, you know, kind of just after F1 locked in its last three-year deal with ESPN, but they got a massive increase from ESPN and their ratings haven't grown that much since then. They really kind of grew from 2020 to kind of 2023 and their three-year deal with ESPN 2023, 2024, and 2025 uh, ever since then, of course, last season, their ratings have plateaued a little bit. So you add it all up and it's uh, it's probably going to be tough for them to get a really big increase. But obviously, one thing to keep an eye on is there's been rumors, not necessarily super well substantiated, but um, there have been some rumors thrown out there over the last six months that Apple could look to do a streaming deal across the entire globe with F1. Um, and so that would obviously be fascinating if something like that happened. It is something to keep an eye on, but uh, we'll have to just see if it happens. They're also involved in that Brad Pitt movie you spoke about, correct, Apple? Absolutely, yeah, they're shooting that. So, uh, you know, Tim Cook has been at races, and they're showing a, a major interest in racing. So from that regard, you can't rule it out. Now, David, you know, what else could possibly help F1 appeal to U.S. fans? You know, you have Haas that was like an American-backed, team. Then you had Sargent, the first U.S. driver in a while coming to the series next year. But I don't think either of those are going to move the needle. Whereas something like Andretti joining the sport, something that is synonymous in the U.S. in motorsports, maybe could have helped move the needle a little bit. Is that something that F1 is missing out on? It's always been said that if you can get a uh, front-running driver of a particular nationality, that is a real booster for the sport in that country and you look at Max Verstappen his success okay very small country the Netherlands but they have off the back of his success uh ended up hosting a race which seemed a difficult thing to have imagined a, a few years earlier from a US point of view certainly a front running driver i think we're a way off that still uh, would be a, a big uh, marker moment and probably have an impact in terms of viewership because there's nothing like getting behind a, you know, a national hero, especially one competing on a truly global platform. I think the team thing is interesting. The Haas team is a US-owned team. It operates sort of half out of the US, half out of Europe. It's not necessarily pitched itself as the American national team in the way that we might have imagined when it first came into F1 in 2016. Andretti's uh, potential entry or bid to enter the sport was rejected out of hand by F1 over the winter. Uh, there was a very detailed response from F1 as to why it wasn't the right moment to allow an 11th team, an expansion franchise, if you like, into the sport, because that's effectively what the sport is becoming, a sort of franchise model. Clearly, you could boil that, that big long list of explanations down to the fact that the 10 existing teams didn't want to split their revenues with an 11th 
team or with a newcomer. But I think it would have been wise for F1 to uh, give that entry or in fact, give any new entry a bit more consideration. I think there's always history shows that in F1, even when you think that teams are solid and manufacturer interest is strong, there is a track record of uh, manufacturers coming and going, you know, at very short notice. And I think it's always wise to have uh, some some new entrants waiting in the wings. Even better if that new entrant is, as you said, a storied name from the United States, the market, the market for F1 in terms of expansion. And I think it really felt like the right moment to give the green light to that. But for for the reasons that we've sort of explained, that doesn't seem like it's happening at the moment. I think there is a route still for the Andretti name to get into F1. I think it's probably ultimately going to be through buying into an existing team. And I think there's possibly a couple of options for that over the next two, three years. But uh, I think that's going to be the only way. But yes, it would have a big impact, I think, on F1's popularity in the States. Adam, we'll give you the last word. What do you think about Andretti? Let's start with this, David and Austin. The most important thing is they got to get their competition better. Okay, um, you know, the Super Bowl is not the Super Bowl if there's a giant blowout every single year. Um, part of the reason people love the NFL and the Super Bowl is what it is is because it's, football is so exciting. We saw this year the game came down to overtime. Uh, 2021 for Formula One, right off the back of the drive to survive effect, starting in 2020 when people were stuck at home, was a perfect storm, amazing timing, but they haven't been able to repeat it since. And that's the first problem they have with their plateauing ratings. Uh, would having Logan Sargent competing help? Absolutely. Would getting Andretti in help? Absolutely. But they have to have an exciting sport. Um, I think people all around the world want to be entertained, but in America, I can assure you, people absolutely want to be entertained and maybe even a little bit more demanding of it than some other markets. So that's been a huge problem for them, and they got to get that right. And there's huge concerns coming out of F1 that this is going to be another Red Bull blowout season. And, and that, that would be devastating for F1. But to get Andretti in would, would help. Um, I think David's exactly right. They could potentially buy their way in still. We'll see what happens there. Or they could try and wait it out till 2028 when General Motors can fully produce an, an engine. Uh, but but they got to get their competition right. It's not necessarily just this season, as, as you say. It seems very likely all the indications are this could be another season of dominance from Max Verstappen and Red Bull Racing. And hats off to them because it's sporting excellence at the highest level. But it's not great for the product at a time when the product is critical for F1. And I do think there's an interesting moment F1 has swept up these new fans through Drive to Survive. Can those new fans sustain, not necessarily just this season, but next season as well, before the big set of rule changes happening in 2026, which does have the potential genuinely to shake up the order again and will be a really interesting moment for the reorganisation of the pack. Can F1 keep all these new fans and will those new fans be satisfied and be able to sustain something they've not seen before, but something that is very common in F1 over the years, which is these periods of dominance by one car and one driver. And I think that's something that Stefano Domenicali and his team at F1 are going to be keeping a really close eye on all the data, all the metrics this season and next. 
Well, a number of issues to pay attention to for F1 as the season begins on Sunday. Adam Stern, our motorsports writer based here in Charlotte. David Cushion, our head of content for Leaders in Sport, who's going to be stateside at our Force event in Manhattan, May 21st through 22nd. Looking forward to seeing you there, David. Gentlemen, thanks for taking the time to chat. Good stuff. Cheers, Adam. Thanks. Now, it's time for Carp's Corner. As we head into the final months of the NBA season, viewership across ABC, ESPN, and TNT is up ever so slightly for the league, probably closer to flat. ESPN on its own is up 3%, while TNT is down 2%. The Lakers and the Warriors continue to drive numbers, and that's fine for now, but the NBA needs to get more marquee player names for national TV broadcasts in the future, more Wembenyama in future years, and a bunch of other players that really need to rise up and replace LeBron and Steph. The big Frenchman isn't going to solve things on his own. Who could those young players be? For now, let's see if the NBA can maintain a slight gain. Viewership was flat last season and has not yet returned to pre-pandemic numbers. John Heyman had a piece for the New York Post looking at how Juan Soto looks to be fitting right in with the Yankees as he begins his first season in pinstripes. Heyman expects the Soto shuffle and bat flips to become commonplace in the Bronx, and the early numbers have already reflected Heyman's thinking. Soto's debut on Sunday was Yes Network's second-best spring training game on record. That has to pour 10 well for the RSN's regular season numbers, particularly if Soto puts up some gaudy numbers in what is a free agent season for him. Will it match Aaron Judge's home-run record-chasing season numbers that Yes Network had? I don't think it's going to get there. But there is strong interest in watching Soto as he looks to establish his place among the Yankee faithful. Finally, and I feel at this point I'm kind of a broken record, but it's another Caitlin Clark game and another women's hoops record. On Sunday, it was FS1 with 816,000 viewers for Illinois-Iowa. That's a record for any women's hoops game on FS1. Big Ten Network is likely salivating over what I imagine is going to be record conference tournament numbers if Iowa makes any sort of run. And likewise, ESPN is eyeing early round records for its NCAA women's tournament coverage. You have to expect Iowa and Caitlin Clark are going to get plum ABC windows for those early rounds. That'll do it for another sports media podcast from the New York Post and SBJ. We want to thank NFL Network's Daniel Jeremiah for stopping by. Also, a special shout out to Adam Stern, Josh Carpenter, and David Cushman for providing great insight. A special thank you to our production team of Chris Mason, Reggie Walker, and A.C. Wyatt. And thank you for joining us. Please be sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week.